regardless of what is happening around you, if you stay true to yourself, I'm sure you'll go much further. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Elisabeth, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. It is definitely my pleasure, and I think I'm going to have so much fun with this conversation. I'm very much looking forward to that. You're an international executive with more than 20 years of experience, and today you are actually the industry lead at Google here in Zurich in Switzerland. But we want to go back in time and wonder who was Elisabeth when she actually grew up. So I was kind of a dreamer, but always, you know, with my feet on the ground. So the first, you know, kind of narrative that I wrote when I was in primary school was, when I grow up, I want to be a butterfly. And that really, you know, kind of resonated, you know, with me past the years, because, um, you know, I, I was six when I told my parents, one day I want to live in the US. And by the way, I had no idea what I was talking about. I just knew that the country would sit, you know, you know, kind of opposite uh, the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, of course, you know, from our hometown, you know, by the coastline in Portugal. Um, and then I think it's just, you know, kind of determined a little bit that I really wanted to fly out, right, and just, you know, discover new worlds. Where, where did that determination, that vision come from? Because that's quite a strong statement as a six-year-old kid. I, I honestly don't know. I think, you know, in some way... The fact that my father, you know, is from across the world, literally, you know, Southeast Asia, and he always, you know, would tell me, you know, I am a citizen of the world and I live in the country where my beloved ones are. Mm -hmm. I think it kind of gave me, you know, some confidence, let's say, that, you know, I could just go out and, uh, yeah, discover things, you know, kind of always look to what is beyond, you know, you, your immediate horizon and be curious about what is out there. Right. But then, I mean, you didn't have any relatives in the US or did you? I did have friends, you know, from my okay. childhood. So there was obviously, you know, some connection. But again, we're friends that I would see, you know, like uh, during summertime. But mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing how it, uh, you know, kind of it marked my future in some way. And we also heard that you had quite extraordinary grandparents. So they also shaped you and your life to a very important part. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, my maternal grandparents, um, they were bakers. So they had, you know, the biggest bakery in the, uh, you know, little town in the middle of Portugal. And, you know, they, I grew up with them telling us, you know, for example, kind of how it was about working so hard, but also playing hard. Right. In the sense, you know, that, yes, they would walk up very early in the morning, of course, you know, to start making everything and then opening up shop. But at the same time, you know, they would also enjoy, you know, life by traveling in you know, all Europe. They traveled to the U.S. back in the 50s, etc. Wow. So, you know, they were kind of, again, very curious about what was beyond, you know, our country. And um, Today, we talk about personalization in business, right? And, you know, the importance of the last mile and customer experience, etc. So back in those times, my grandparents, they would know the name of every single person that was coming into the store. They knew, you know, what they wanted before they asked for. And when they were creating something new, they obviously were only, you know, kind of suggesting to those that they knew they would probably buy it. So it's kind of precision targeting, you know, back in the six, in the 50s, 60s, right, right, that we are talking about. 
on my father's side, so my grandfather was one of the first nurse, um, you know, kind of surgeons actually, you know, professionalized in Portugal. And it was sent by the government uh, at that time. And, you know, we were under a dictatorship uh, under Salazar. It was sent to um, East Timor, um, you know, to take care of obviously, you know, uh, the hospital there and etc. And that's, you know, also where, you know, we met my grandmother and then my father came along, etc. So, um, you know, values are really down to work hard, be very kind and generous, respect and be considerate always of other people. And, you know, make sure you, you live a proposal uh, life. This sounds really like that the, the core essence of doing business, of being an entrepreneur is timeless because those lessons that you took away from your grandparents might still apply, apply today. They are just, you know, maybe a bit more digitized, but it's basically the same core concept. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we always talk about, you know, these big buzzwords, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, some of them, you know, I just mentioned. But the reality is, in the end of the day, you know, we say that business and selling is really human. And as long as you are dealing with other people, people connect with other people, right. right? More than they connect, you know, with just a product or a service. And that's really kind of what keeps people coming back. And that was, you know, the example back then and is the example today as well. And that's exactly the two topics that we basically want to address with you today. First, leadership and then also strategy, mm -hmm. basically the essence of doing business, of being an entrepreneur. So I'm really curious to learn more about what you took away from your grandparents, but also what you learned in today's world at Google and all the other uh, interesting and fascinating positions that you already had in your career. So let's first start with leadership. Mm -hmm. What, from your perspective, is the biggest misconception people have about good leadership? So I often, you know, hear people saying, my leader or my manager is great. You know, they set a vision. They tell us what to do. We know all the priorities. This is great. We just follow. We know where we can spend our time. And that's it. And the second one is, um, my manager or my leader, they know it all. I think that these two misconceptions can actually hurt your business in a kind of long term, but also harm the growth of your people. You obviously want leaders that can inspire, you know, towards a vision. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to setting priorities, etc., if you have the right people in your team, especially your, you know, next level of leaders, you should be co-creating, mm -hmm. right? You should not be uh, one person sets and the other ones, you know, kind of will follow through. And then the second one around, you know, they know it all, it means then we have a big blind spot because there's not such a thing as one being omnipresent and knowing everything, right? You cannot know everything about, you know, like the future of the industry along with, you know, marketing practices and financial, uh, you know, kind of discipline and so on and so forth. It's really about, you know, usually... In Google, and this is a very, you know, kind of world-wide uh, um, uh, use concept, is the wisdom of the crowds, right? Mm -hmm. So you bring people, regardless of their levels, right, or even position in the company, together to exactly co-create strategies, priorities, yeah. to balance off ideas, to be sparing partners, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah, nobody knows everything. 
Absolutely. That's just a fact. So then the question is, of course, what actually makes a good leader? You spoke about co-creation. Can you elaborate a bit more what actually makes a good leader from your perspective and experience? Of course. So, um, you know, a part of this is my own experience, you know, just by kind of observing. Part of this is also, you know, kind of really substantiated in data. Um, you know, a few years back, for example, you know, in our um, in Google, we did a massive study to really understand what were the behaviors that set, you know, a good leader or a good manager apart from those that were not such. And what we found out is that leaders that are great coaches, so, you know, they ask you the right questions, right, and for you to think a little bit more broadly, um, leaders that create an environment where people feel, sa feel safe to speak up. So usually we use the words psychological safety, right? right? It's incredibly, you know, important. Is also the leader that uh, acknowledges, you know, that sometimes you can be wrong. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, exactly because you don't know it all, you need to revisit, you know, your perspectives, also your priorities. What is important is that you create that learning environment where you can learn as a leader, but also the people around you have the space to continue to grow. And of course, you need to have the technical knowledge, right? Because, you know, if I am managing for example, um, a team, you know, of computer scientists developing software development, probably I won't be very useful to them. I can be, you know, uh, probably a good manager, you know, from a people perspective, a good coach. But if I really want to get deep into what they are working on and debate ideas, technically, I wouldn't be able, you know, to do that. Mm -hmm. So you need to bring a certain level of, you know, expertise or competence to be able to also help grow, you know, the people around you. You mentioned the study and also how you measured good leadership. Mm -hmm. For me, this always seems, you know, quite difficult to do because leadership, it's in theory, uh, of course, also in practice, a very interesting and fascinating topic. But how can you really grasp it? How can you make it measurable? So how do you actually measure good leadership? Is there any tip or tactic how you can measure a good leader? Yes. So, um, and, you know, this is um, information that is public. You know, we have, for example, in Google, um, a site that is called Rework, where yeah. we publish exactly, you know, kind of our studies and, you know, what we observed, you know, through years and years, you know, of working with managers. And the way we do it is, you know, people um, are usually aware of what you call a performance, uh, annual performance review, right, or mid-year performance mm -hmm. review or something that you see in pretty much every, you know, company. But what we also do is we also make sure that our managers, you know, um, are given feedback on certain criteria. And we looked into that criteria and then we cross-checked with, you know, for example, retention, you know, of talent and satisfaction of the team. Nice. And this is kind of how we understood what were those triggers of, you know, good leadership and good management. Do you gather the feedback anonymously or is it open so you know who actually gave you what kind of feedback? Yeah, so feedback is always, you know, uh, a very important topic, right? Mm -hmm. So we definitely do it, you know, anonymously, but also, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis or one-to-group basis, you know, for example, in my case, I keep asking, you know, my team for feedback and I usually, you know, ask them, you know, to kind of keep myself, you know, on check, mm -hmm. right? Because I think it's from that balance that you also can create a culture of trust. Right. 
in that regard, there's a saying that we often hear, you know, we read that in, in leadership books where it says, praise in public, criticize in private. Is that something that you think is applicable and should be followed? To a certain extent. So, of course, you know, criticizing or, you know, in some cases, if you take it to extreme, humiliating people in public is an absolute no-go. Right. Mm -hmm. You do. You just don't do it in front right. of others, you know, regardless if it is two people or three people or a thousand people. And what I believe, though, is that when you are in front of a group, focus on the strengths of what a person or a group brought in, you know, onto the business, you know, onto the team, mm -hmm. because there's always something good right on what people do. Um, and then when it comes, you know, to the private moment, right, talk about again, talk about what is going well and probably what could be even better. Mm -hmm. And in that regard is criticizing is about giving constructive feedback and helping the person in front of you or the group in front of you, right, mm -hmm. to grow, to change. Um, and in that regard, um, I think it's a good motto. Let's put it this way, right? In principle, just needs to be uh, used very carefully. And talking about giving feedback, do you have a good example or like a blueprint about how to do that properly? Because often here in Switzerland, I see that people, they start with the good things and then they say, but you could do this and that better. And then it sort of, you know, makes the positive feedback that you gave at the beginning less worthy. So how do you give appropriate feedback that is on point, but also helpful for the other people receiving it? Um, so, yes, you are right. You know, there are, um, at the same time, there are many books out there, many different fra frameworks, but one that I usually use just because I think it's simple and usually mm -hmm. resonates, you know, with a person and also resonates with me when I'm receiving my own That's feedback. That's very important too, yeah. Right? Is, you know, the framework of situation, behavior, impact. So basically, is you start, you know, kind of really describing, oh, you know, I realized in this specific moment that this happened. Yeah. And it seemed, you know, that, you know, uh, you came across as X or Y. And by the way, this was the impact, you know, observed in other people or impact in a project. For example, you know, it, it got delayed or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. So if you follow a simple framework like this, and again, this is just one of many, I think you can uh, be a little bit, you know, more effective, if not um, a lot. What often, you know, I see people telling me, not only, you know, in, in the company, but obviously, you know, uh, overall outside, is sometimes they receive some feedback, but they cannot relate to what was the situation, you yeah. know, at hand. And that usually can kind of confuses people more than actually it helps. Mm -hmm. So we should be, you know, pretty, um, you know, kind of uh, real uh, fact-based, yeah. first and foremost, about yeah. those situations. And being very specific there, yes. that's, that's the helpful part. Yes, absolutely. In, in that regard, I also wonder, when do you actually impose your own opinion as a leader? And when should you actually more concede and take a step back and say, I first want to listen to what you have to say because I voice my own thoughts and opinions? So uh, first of all, you know, full transparency, I talk a lot. I tend to talk a lot, right? And often, you know, I even ask, you know, people around me, you know, make sure that I'm not into talking too much. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned, you know, through, through the years is the following. If I am, for example, you know, with my team, I try to ask the question and then I am the last, you know, to talk. 
and um or I try, you know, as much as I can. But definitely there are moments where if you need to make a decision very fast, right? So you are against the clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, you know, kind of bringing people together and discussing it may not be so effective. Also, depending on the impact, right, of the decision, you know, kind of itself. And I would always say, um, and I have a little bit of a hard time with that is, do you have an opinion? Do you have or do you have a perspective that is informed by something or do you have an instinct because your experience tells you X or Y? And these three levels are very different. Um, and I think, you know, we if we go more into the second and to the third, mm-hmm. it's probably, it's more effective in terms of debating, uh, you know, perspectives. Interesting. How, how do you also then differentiate between the three? Because I can imagine it's not always that easy to say, okay, I have an intuition or I actually have some facts uh, that lead me to that conclusion or to that gut feeling in the end. Yes. So, um, you know, between obviously being informed, um, you know, and opinion is easier, right? Because you inform is, okay, I read this or I looked into this report or something, right? So you are bringing, right. you know, as facts and uh, numbers usually. Mm-hmm. The opinion is, you know, usually you kind of start probing, okay, you know, um, what what is behind, you know, that thought, right? Um, kind of what is your experience? And then very quickly you will see if it is just, you know, kind of, okay, you know, this is my angle. Um, okay, where is it coming from? The instinct, you know, based on experience uh, is, in my view and my own experience, is more about um, where do you have some experiences or you've been through similar situations and you know what choices you made at that point mm-hmm. and what were the consequences of those choices, right? Yeah. For example, you know, sometimes, you know, we are discussing, um, you know, in my, uh, in some of the startups that I am, uh, um, you know, I'm supporting is, oh, do we go to market A or market B first? And then we are like, okay, do we have data, right? Have you been there before? Is anyone else in the, in, in the group has been there before? Do you know how it works, you know, in market A versus market B? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, is kind of, let's be a little bit more um, specific, but also disciplined about bringing your perspectives and that they are substantiated. Yeah, I like that. So it's not always a black and white, but it's also a co-creation, as you mentioned at the beginning. Absolutely. And then I also wonder, you know, the feedback culture, the discussing culture that we heard uh, about so far, this also requires a certain team culture. So you need to have a safe environment where people are open and also willing to actually voice their honest opinion and thoughts. How do you get there? Because that's also something, you know, it's important, but getting there can be quite tricky and difficult. Yes, and it can take a long time, mm-hmm. right? Because we are talking then about, you know, changing mindsets and changing behaviors. You know, for the last, you know, couple of years that we know, uh, there's been a lot, you know, of conversation, you know, with the Me Too uh, movement or, you know, obviously racism, etc. There are even words that we have in our vocabulary that we probably didn't realize before how biased they would be, right? You know, people use the word blackmailing or white listening, or cosmetics, you know, that are for whitening, right? Just These are just some examples. And it's like, how can we actually, first of all, be aware that there's something doesn't seem very inclusive? Mm-hmm. Then in terms of the culture, first and foremost is, who, 
how you make that group a diverse one. Because if you don't, you will never be really diverse, right? Because if everybody in a team has the same background, has been through the same university, you know, as sometimes, you know, I've seen, um, it's very hard, you know, to get them to think a little bit more expansively and be outside of their comfort zone, right? So first and foremost, are you hiring people of diverse backgrounds? Secondly, do you create a space where anyone can speak up? Because there's not such a thing as, you know, a perspective that is not valid or so. Um, and when people speak up, regardless of who they are, are they getting the right credit and recognition, you know, for it? And then if you are facilitating or if you are leading, for example, you know, a team or a conversation, make sure that, again, back to our, you know, uh, a discussion around leadership, make sure that you are not uh, imposing, you know, your own perspective kind of over others. And always acknowledging, you know, that you may be wrong too, and that you may have a blind spot. And sometimes that is very, very hard, is acknowledging that. I can imagine. That's like, as a leader, you always also think that people expect you to lead to the right way. But as we said, you don't always know everything. You certainly don't. So uh, you also have to acknowledge that you might be wrong. And that, you know, it's um, the power of vulnerability, right? Which okay. is, is having the courage to go and learn what you don't know mm-hmm. and, you know, saying, yes, you know what? I actually made a mistake. I thought I was right in this direction and I wasn't, mm-hmm. right? And then just bring that because the moment you bring that, you layer, you know, a, um, a culture that people want to be courageous, people want to be, you know, to speak up, let's put it this way, and they want to feel confident mm-hmm. with anything that they put forward. To me, this also sounds a bit like, you know, being authentic, the whole authenticity that I know what I know, but I also know what I don't know. And you're really authentic and open and transparent about that with your team. Yes. And that's, you know, another big topic, right? When it comes, you know, to authenticity, um, you, I'm sure, you know, you probably are aware one of the top TED shows of all all time was about, you know, kind of you fake it until you make it. And, you know, it really is how you take that the next step, which is regardless of what is happening around you, if you stay true to yourself, I'm sure you'll go much further. 100%. I also want to deep dive a bit on the two topics that you mentioned before, inclusion and diversity. First of all, which one is harder to manage, inclusion or diversity? Um, I think it is inclusion. Um, So, you know, this week, actually, you know, starting this week, uh, um, there is a big global event called I Am Remarkable. It's going to be around uh, a week Mm -hmm. where people around the world can sign up to it for sessions that go from how you can hire towards diverse teams to how can you make sure that everyone in the room has a voice. So I think we can always use quotas, right? Which to a certain extent, I think they can work. Mm -hmm. 
we can always, um, you know, go and hire, obviously, you know, people from other backgrounds, you know, etc. But then when you have a group formed and you want that group to collaborate and to work together, inclusion comes when everybody really feels part and that belongs to that group, right? And that's a completely, you know, new level of interaction is how do you make sure that everything that we say, it's inclusive and not biased. It will not offend someone in the room, for example. And again, that, you know, is obviously intertwined, but I think it's a different level, you know, of complexity. Also because our minds are formatted, you know, in some ways, and then sometimes reformatting is much harder, Mm -hmm. right, than just continue, uh, you know, a certain habit. This is really eye-opening for me because everybody talks about diversity these days. And it seems to me now with what you say, diversity is just the the first step. Then the inclusion is really where the magic happens. Once you have a diverse team, you still need to have an inclusive culture to actually get the most out of it. The most diverse team will not perform better if you don't have an inclusive culture. And then if you even think beyond the team and your business, because no company can survive without some level of connection and collaboration with the rest of the ecosystem, right? The local communities, you know, uh, the public agents, agents, and so on. So how can you then be inclusive or their own perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that you are doing as a business is not clashing, right? Or not being, let's say, say, even offensive to some underrepresented groups that can be out there. Right. I, I fully understand the point. At the same time, I also see the, the business perspective. If you then would have to invest three or four times more time to think about your messages and how you communicate, to be fully inclusive, that could also be something that some companies might just not be open or willing to invest. So how do you balance that to be inclusive, but to also do that in an efficient and still a, a business manner? It's, uh, I think it is less about investing or even, you know, thinking, okay, um, now I have time to be inclusive mm-hmm. or I'm going to have time to help my team be inclusive. Yes. I think it's much more even back to the core values of your business. Mm-hmm. They need to reflect a certain level of being inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. And if you hire people, that can connect with those values and can live those values every day in your business, I think you have you are halfway through, right? And then is the culture. And the culture, what is the culture of a company if not the combination of those values with what are the behaviors that you want people to show up in the workplace? And if you make those very clear, I think it's much more a question of, you know, for example, I can help my peers being inclusive if I give them feedback on something that I have noticed probably wasn't so much. And the same right. in reverse, because then it's almost like, you know, you cross check and cross correct each other. And I think that is the most important one is a behavioral, you know, and, and the mindset in the end of the day is less about investing mm-hmm. and is a, you know, and of course, this feedback culture needs needs to be there because I truly believe that if you have the inclusive, the diversity part, the the feedback and the strong culture, your business from a bottom line perspective is going to be way more prosperous. Why do you think that? 
So there are actually studies, right, mm-hmm. that uh, connect to diversity and inclusion impact and bottom line. People, if they are safe and confident in their places on what they are doing that they truly believe, they will be way more productive. They will go the extra mile. They will be motivated. They will be aspirational because they know that when they reach something that is good for the company, it will also be good for themselves. So to summarize, I think this is a really beautiful framework. So first you have to hire diverse. You have to think about your inclusive core values that you also hold up high to really shape your company culture and then have the endless loop of giving feedback to really reinforce these values and then you, you basically do that in an infinite loop and that's how you actually build an inclusive and diverse culture. Yes. That's wonderful. In that regard, you know, we often also see that unfortunately there are so few women in leadership positions. So from your perspective, from your experience, what do you think is the reason behind that? So there are quite a few reasons. I think that one of the top ones is definitely, you know, uh, women balancing, you know, work and their career aspirations mm-hmm. with, you know, other, let's say, priorities, um, you know, in their own lives, right? You know, whether it is family or, you know, taking care, you know, of, um, you know, elderly parents or, mm-hmm. or so. Um, I think also, uh, you know, there this underrepresentation kind of feeds itself Right, because the moment you have um, not only for women but also you know under under underrepresented groups, um, they are not present, you know, in leadership positions. Right, there's less awareness probably on the value of bringing them along with. So, do you think it's also a lack of role models that inspire the next generation to go down that path? I think that there is also related, um, you know, to it, uh, because in the end of the day, we all kind of follow certain, you know, role models or people that we admire. And there are certain societies where, you know, the, there is a prominence of a certain group and uh, that becomes kind of the reality of that society, right? So why, and and always was like that. So it's kind of the norm. So why would I try to, you know, contradict, let's say that Mm. normality or that norm? Right. And from your perspective, what can we do to change that? So I briefly, you know, talked uh, earlier on around uh, quotas. So quotas, I, I think they are good to a certain extent because they really bring awareness to the reality one. And secondly, they bring underrepresented groups onto the conversation, onto the table. I think where quotas can be a little bit risky is past that point where, for example, you know, I don't know if someone is hiring for a certain top position in a company, um, it would be good if you have a balance between, you know, women and men or other represented groups. Mm-hmm. But then in the end, you know, whoever takes that position should be the person that has the best performance, you know, whether it is in interviews or the best background and so on and so forth, but also that can complement the group that the person will be joining, right, from a diverse perspective. Mm-hmm. So this is one, definitely the second one is, you know, we have so many programs, you know, um, around um, 
on how we can help women and other underrepresented, you know, minorities to build their confidence, you know, to build their voice. Right, you know, I learned recently, and I know it's also part, you know, of this program that I just mentioned, the I Am Remarkable Week. There are coaches on how you strengthen your voice. And it's not particularly, you know, to women, but any underrepresented group, right? right? Um, so it's like role models, yes, quotas probably, um, programs that help women advance, and then the concept of allyship, you know, that I usually talk about around how can, you know, for example, how can I help other women, you know, advance in their careers? How could you, for example, you know, as one of the founders of Cispreneur, also help the women and other representative groups in your organization grow, right? right? And that is significantly important. Uh, we can see it in the academic world, for example. There are quite a bit you know, of allyship-related programs. Uh, but the concept itself is incredibly important. Again, if you want to go from the diversity to you know, inclusion is even more important. Nice. I, I like that bundle of, of the, the package of different initiatives that really tackle the root of the issue. Another challenge that I would like to talk to you about in regards to leadership is no matter where the people come from, but many people start a company, a startup at quite a young age. So they have not the 20 years of experience in leadership positions as you have. What would you recommend them to get started? Because then at a certain point in time, they can hire people, they become a leader, whether they want it or not. What would you recommend them to really develop as a leader at that early young age? This is a very interesting question because, you know, when I started actually working with one of my uh, entrepreneurs uh, back in 2017, um, you would be reading tons of books, right? You know, on leadership, on obviously you now building a startup and so on and so forth. What I would always, you know, invited him was think about who you want to be as a leader, and as an entrepreneur, and what you want to be known for. Because this will also clarify to him, to her, uh, what they want to focus on and what they need to give to other people. And from self-awareness, so this is a point of self-awareness, right? Where I'm good at, mm -hmm. where I am not good at, and I will never be, and that's okay, Right. And um, how I can lean on others to help me ask difficult questions, to challenge me. And then, you know, of course, you know, um, with, with coaching. Right. So I know everybody talks about coaching, but in the end, that coaching is really, you know, usually I say it's like a shepherd that helps you in your journey of a leader or, you know, an entrepreneur or you know, but it's a path towards your identity in mm -hmm. some way. Um, and that, for me, is very important and can start very early. You know, I just learned recently that now there's a, a one coaching institute out there that is offering a program on parenting as coaching. And this just shows kind of, you know, how valuable it can be 
even before you are thinking about setting up your entrepreneurial or starting entrepreneurial path, it actually can start since you are a kid. You ask questions, right? You show different things, you know, to kids. You expose them. Do you ask them to make choices? And what are the consequences of choosing A or B? Mm-hmm. And this is very important, you know, to for them to build that confidence and in some way they leadership style too, right? Yeah. And again, I think in that path that usually as an entrepreneur can be very lonely. You need to lean on on others to help you within that leadership path. I think that's a beautiful takeaway. We also are always surprised and also super happy when people openly talk about how they work with coaches, how they get support from the external, because often you don't think that they do that because, you know, they are the well-known unicorn startup CEO, but then you actually realize, hey, they get help to develop themselves to go to the next level. And that's totally normal. Otherwise, you would probably crack on the pressure that you put on your shoulders. So that's a, a beautiful takeaway. Once your company then grows, and you've also seen a lot in your career, you know, from startup to the huge corporation as Google is today, how does the leadership role and also the challenges and, and tasks that you have as a leader, how does that change over the lifetime of a company? So usually in the beginning, you know, you are like one entrepreneur, right? Or just a very small team. So you end up by doing everything. Right. Right. And then it, it's, it's like a, a little bit of, uh, you know, like, a little bit of mayhem to a certain extent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and can be very overwhelming. But at that time, what is very clear usually is that we know what our mission is. So everybody is behind the mission, a lot of energy, of course, including, you know, the founders. Then, you know, you start to grow and your role starts to change, you know, a little bit because then you go from almost doing everything to really focusing on on where you can add the most value. Is it corporate development? Is it, um, you know, on the finance side? Is it marketing? Is it some something else? And then you hire the team and the team starts doing those things that you are probably not so good at, mm-hmm. right? Or just want to branch out from. Right. And then as you grow, you start building, you know, kind of the leaders underneath you, right? And they would have their respective teams. So you are not leading anymore directly everyone. Mm -hmm. You need to trust others to actually lead, you know, parts of your business. So the level of complexity is a little bit bigger because you also want to ensure that the culture, that the, the leadership or the management practices are kind of consistent across. And that's, you know, where it starts getting a little bit more complex because we are human beings, right? So we behave differently, we think differently. And that's exactly, you know, why this is also, you know, unique and fascinating of Mm -hmm. leading, you know, big teams. And then, you know, as you become a corporation, then um, you usually also become a very matrix, you know, company. Right, I know the likes of Google, you know, and and others. And in a matrix organization, actually, your authority does not come from who you manage or who you lead. It actually becomes from who you can influence, 
who you can bring along with you that is not necessarily, you know, within your division or so, but that you need to collaborate with in order to be successful, right? So you end up being more, usually I call ourselves orchestrators, right? We are like orchestrators or conductors, right, that try to just... uh, Bring other people along with your priorities to support you to deliver on a project, for example, or on products, mm-hmm. right? In order for your team and for, you know, uh, companies out there to be more successful. Right. So that's a really like a challenge by itself to also grow with the company. That's, that's correct. And, you know, no one, not everyone is going to become a CEO of a company, right? So it's really finding sure. that place, you know, later on, on... Again, back to my initial, you know, point of who do you want to be known for and what is the impact that you really want to have? It really comes down to the self-awareness again. How do you actually practice that or how do you recommend, you know, the people that you work with to practice the self-awareness? Do you write a diary to reflect or how do you do that? So definitely, you know, there are people that write a diary. Um, Usually, you know, I have like some thinking time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, since the pandemic started, you know, I'm still working from home. I have around two hours per week that I call it, you know, my mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I reflect, you know, kind of on what am I doing, right? Um, are there any things that, for example, I want to engage like a new learning or so? So it's really create that space. And, you know, as I coach leaders, I always invite them to take that space once per week, once every two weeks, even if it is sometimes only 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's just do a check on yourself, like, you know, pause and step nice. back. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, sometimes I, I hear, oh, but I don't have time. We have. We just need to make it because it needs to be a priority. And, you know, of course, when you have, uh, you know, help from mentors or advisors or coaches, usually, you know, a third party, let's say, will help you uh, with that uh, self-awareness. And there you think about a coach or some, someone else to support you from the, from the outside, right? Yes. So, you know, in my case, for example, I have a coach for many years. So mm-hmm. I coach others, but I also have my own coach, right? That yeah. once in a while I reach out to just bounce off, you know, a few thoughts mm-hmm. to get me grounded. Um, and, uh, you know, just a sparring partner. Sometimes that's really what you need. Got it. So I think to to summarize the the leadership part of our conversation, it really is about self-awareness. That's the core. That's the start for you as a leader. And then from there, you can take it to the points that we discussed, you know, from building an inclusive culture, hiring a diverse team, but also continuing with the endless feedback loop to get better and better and to develop a strong team together. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the leadership part? I would just say... If you really want to have an impact, focus on your purpose all the times. Because it's very easy, you know, in such a dynamic, you know, fast-pacing environments that we all live, and not to say, you know, all the challenges obviously caused by, you know, the current pandemic situation, it's very easy for us to get distracted by things that are probably not so important, in a given moment. But if you keep focus on your 
purpose on what you want to achieve for yourself and for others, usually that helps you, you know, stay focused. I would say very, very important is to stay stay focused. Absolutely. Ellie, thank you so much for the first part and we'll meet again for the second part very shortly. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.